Welcome to The Mend, a podcast for survivors, victims of crime, and the people who serve them, sponsored through the Center for Crime Victim Services here in Vermont. I am Anna Nasset, and I will be your host for this bi-monthly podcast. This show was created to take a deeper look at services, organizations, and concepts for victims and survivors of crime. We wanted to acknowledge the healing process and provide resources, not only in our state of Vermont, but throughout the country that could benefit victims of crime as they begin to mend. As your host, I myself am a victim and survivor of crime, and my healing process and how I navigate through the world is an ongoing and ever-evolving process. I went through years of hiding myself and my trauma to standing up and speaking out against crime and now travel with, to speak with victim service providers. I will share with some of the services and resources I have used over the many years to mend myself and investigate all sorts of other um, avenues for victims of crime to be able to heal and proceed. Our hope with the show is that everyone who has been a victim of crime or affected by crime knows they are not alone. I do want to begin with a trigger warning. Our goal is to create a safe place to discuss topics of healing. But with that in mind, we may occasionally hear a story related to crime, discuss our mental health, or have other sensitive matter. We urge you to care for yourself and listen at your own discretion. As you listen to this podcast, you will notice that I acknowledge I am a victim of crime. And while the show is not intended to focus on people's stories, myself and the sponsors, the Center for Crime Victim Services, have decided to give you a little bit more insight into the experience of a victim. So today we're going to do something a little bit different and I'm going to share a little bit more about my story and life with you so that you get to know me, your host, better. Today I am going to talk about the experience of being stalked by a man I do not know for the last eight years. As a victim of a very rare and extreme type of stalking, parts of the story and the results are that extreme. But the feelings I've had over many years are the same as anyone who has experienced stalking by a partner, acquaintance, or stranger for any amount of time. The incredible services I have received by my service providers over the years are a testament to what all victims of crime deserve and need. Before sharing with you, I do want to address that the offender in this crime is currently incarcerated and does happen to have undifferentiated schizophrenia, which has manifested as erotomania. This is an incredibly rare mental health condition, and I want everyone to remember that while our media and Hollywood highlight on very rare conditions such as this, the vast reality, the, the reality is the vast, vast majority of people with mental health conditions are not violent and live beautiful and healthy lives. Almost eight years ago, I was living my best life. I was the gallery owner in the small coastal town of Port Townsend, Washington. I had a great life hosting monthly gallery walks, fundraisers, and events. I had a large group of friends and was well-known in my community for my success as a young woman in business. All of that changed for me one Friday in November 2011 as I was working on a window at my gallery to ready it for gallery walk the next day. It was maybe 8 p.m. at night and a man up to, came up to the door, which I had locked. As I stood there on display in the window of my gallery, he knocked on the door I remember feeling something was wrong, just a little bit of fear, as I would with anybody I didn't know approaching me at night. I opened the door just a small amount, just the size of my frame, not even allowing him in. He introduced himself, he gave me a small painting that he had made for me, and stated that he wanted to show artwork at my gallery. 
I said thank you. I gave him my business card where he could send his images and resume. As this was my practice with anybody wanting to show up my gallery, the entire interaction was less than five minutes. He left and I locked the door. That five-minute conversation changed my life and the path it's been on forever. The next day after that initial meeting, he submitted images and a biography to me online and I politely declined showing his artwork with my normal format email, something to the effect of, I'm not interested, but I'll keep you on file for future reference. In hindsight, maybe that wasn't the best way to address him because it allowed him to think that maybe someday I would show his work. But I had no idea what was unfolding, so I stuck with my normal um, way of response. Immediately, I started receiving messages via Facebook that he could change his um, genre of artwork. He would make anything. He started inviting me to his studio. He started commenting on my appearance and stating that I was hella hot and melted him like butter. He started talking about seeing me on the street and other locations, but I never saw him. This was his way of initially beginning to let me know that he was watching me. Obviously, I was not friends with him on Facebook and never accepted any of his multiple requests, but this was eight years ago when you could message people without any restrictions. I remember at the time consulting uh, the guy I was dating as I'd never had an artist address me in this way. and My radar was starting to go off that something might not be okay. He helped me craft a short message stating something like, I'm firm, stating firmly that I was not going to show his artwork, but I put a professional voice to it. After that message, I've only communicated with the offender one other time in order to pursue a protection order. I've never responded to his hundreds and hundreds of messages over the last eight years. After I sent that message, I continued to receive complex messages from this man I didn't know, starting to state things like he wanted to marry me, that he was watching me, expressing wanting to harm me. They all started arriving daily or in the middle of the night. He wrote to me that he saw on social media that I was in a relationship, but he never saw me with anyone, so he thought I was lying. I would walk to my car in fear after work, making sure to be on the phone with somebody or pretending to be on the phone with somebody, looking over my shoulder or holding the keys in my hands the way all of us women know. I would wake up in the middle of the night to dozens of messages on my phone and they kept incoming, and I was living a very alone, quiet life um, in the woods, so it was horrifically terrifying due to the isolation of my location. I felt as though he was dangerous and escalating, and I went to law enforcement where they affirmed my perceptions. My first meeting with law enforcement, I began to work with an officer, Bill Corrigan. He walked me through finally reports as to the messages I was receiving, how to gather information moving forward, how to keep a log, how to keep myself safe. He shared openly with me that the offender was known within the community for other small crimes. And they didn't think he was dangerous, but law enforcement did have uh, fears that he could escalate. What sticks out back to me then was I was immediately believed by Officer Corrigan. He never questioned my story, even though it was just a woman coming in saying, I'm scared and I don't know what's happening. He talked to me with professionalism and in a way that exuded empathy. He acknowledged my fear, he validated it, but he did so with kindness. Officer Bill and I have worked together nearly eight years now in protecting me and getting prosecution. I consider him a friend and regularly update him here about my life in Vermont. In fact, he and I have even been able to present together at a conference. That first meeting with Officer Corrigan, as he shared with me everything, um, it really has helped me 
put myself at ease during this incredibly stressful and scary time. And I left following Officer Corrigan's instructions and communicated to the offender in written form that he was no longer to communicate with me via any means possible. And this was in order to move forward with a protection order. It's something that a victim has to do when um, trying to get a protection order. You have to let the offender know one more time not to communicate with you. That was the last time I ever communicated with the offender, and that was in December 2011. He immediately started messaging me, asking me if he could come to my gallery, writing about seeing me around, likening me to actresses in French films. It was chaos. It was terrifying. He kept calling the gallery. I'd see him outside on the street. Others would report seeing him outside my business late at night or even during daylight hours. At this point, I had every right to petition the courts for a protection order, as the offender obviously kept contacting me. But I didn't, and I'll share why. In Washington state, as in many other states, at the time of a protection order, both parties have to be present and stand next to one another in front of the judge. The idea of doing this terrified me to my core, so I didn't file. So the contact kept coming and I kept just trying to avoid it and handing over report after report when the offender tried to contact me. Um, to give one clear example of an instance that happened that I initially chalked up to coincidence was I should mention that I'm a lifelong Green Bay Packers fan. And so every Sunday, a group of us would gather at a small house on the outskirts of town to cheer on the green and gold. So every Sunday, my car would be parked down this little road and one day while watching the game, I looked up out the window and there was the offender standing outside. I remember being stunned and talking to my friends, just kind of stammering over my words, like, this is the guy that I guess is stalking me? Like, I don't know what's going on. This has to be a coincidence. He loitered outside the home for 30 minutes before walking away. And in those early days, I would chalk things up to coincidence often. But this is the thing in a crime like stalking. There is no coincidence. This is calculated behavior to intimidate and cause fear. And the offender was and continues to be very good at it. My case took a remarkable fast track and ended up getting prosecuted in January 2012. In the states alone, roughly 7.5 million people are stalked every year and maybe only four to 6% actually go to prosecution. So I was really lucky that this happened. And I'll admit, I'm a fairly intelligent woman, but I don't know law. So when I was called up by the prosecuting attorney that this was going to be taken to court, I had no idea that I didn't get to choose this. So as I handed over report after report to Officer Corrigan, I never really understood what was being done with them. I thought, as so many victims do, that I get to choose if this would be prosecuted. And that's the thing. Victims, most likely, we have no idea what's happening. Our rational minds are flying out the window because we've got so much trauma coming in so fast. Concepts I could easily grasp become challenging. I forget things during traumatic times. Um, I have PTSD and anxiety from the years of trauma, which has gotten better. But I'll deal with that for the rest of my life. And I'm keenly aware of the long-term effects, um, especially when I'm going through a court case, which I currently am right now. So back then in 2012, throughout the court hearings, there was times where I was told to be at court and times I was not. Because it was discovered that as I would come to court um, to be in the hearings, it was making the offender think that I wanted to be with him and that I loved him.
There were times I was hidden in bathrooms and hallways waiting for court. I was constantly having to close my business to make last minute appearances. I began working with an advocate from the local shelter in my community after it was determined um, that my appearances were making him want to think I wanted to be with him. Eventually we got to pretrial and a competency evaluation was done of the offender. And he was found fit to stand trial, which may sound surprising but honestly isn't. What's always stood out about him, and all of my team of service providers agree, is that he's extremely intelligent. He is a highly intelligent individual who is a methodical and high thinker. But there is this undercurrent of evil, and it's unknown what controls that evil and what is possible in action in the future. The methodical nature and intellect of the offender are clear and will become clearer as we move forward. He also work, walks a very fine line in his actions and writing. He has an incredible understanding of the legal system and knows how to, di how to navigate it with a pathological intelligence. After six months of court hearings back in 2012, the offender pled guilty through a very long story of the case and was given the maximum for a misdemeanor of stalking, which is 364 days in jail with time served factored in. After the case closed, the district court judge and her partner would regularly come down to my monthly gallery walks. She would always ask how I was doing. At fundraisers or community events, we'd run into each other and have a friendly conversation about my life and gallery, but she'd also check in to see if there had been any encounters with the offender. And other people, other service providers of mine would do the same. I lived in a very small town, so I would regularly run into people. And I think one of the things that meant so much to me and speaks volumes to that community is that they did care. And when a service provider would take that time out to acknowledge me outside of the court, it just helped me feel human at a time when I just felt so isolated and alone. Because of my status in the community, I was lucky that that happened often. And also, because a crime like stalking is so psychological, sometimes you wonder if it's just all in your head. Like, it is crazy making. So being validated by these people showed me just how real this is. After that year in jail, the offender was released and my normal routine became anything but. I started shopping at the grocery store out of town. I moved into an apartment within 500 feet of my gallery in a locked building because I had a 500 foot protection order. I stopped taking my walks during the morning and it's odd that this became my world. And it's one that I still have a hard time grasping what it was like before. Just a few months after the offender was released, he started writing details letters and sending them to the local police department. I was called into the police department one day as these letters contained very graphic ways and all of the ways I should die. They were also riddled with sexually graphic and physically threatening language. They detailed such as things like the offender and I were married in his mind. I asked the officer to show me the letters. He read me a couple of the um, specifics of things that the offender had said, and I told him to stop. I didn't need to hear any more. The letter went on to share that in the offender's mind, he was also married to 200 other women, though he considers myself and one other woman to be top wives. The other woman he considers to be a top wife he has also continued to be stalked by the offender, and her and I have become dear friends. Back then, all of it was confusing, it was terrifying, it was sickening. 
However, law enforcement couldn't do anything that day. They couldn't make an arrest. Because he didn't say he was going to kill me, he simply said I should die in these very specific ways. As I said, these letters continue to this day, um, and I am notified when they come in, and it's traumatizing and terrifying, yet luckily they don't tell me what's in them. My officers sat down, me down that day, and they explained to me that they thought the threat was getting bigger for me of actual physical harm, especially because I was a public figure in the community. His behavior was different than it had been in the past. In the past, he had stalked people for short spurts of time and moved on, but he wasn't moving on. They did extra patrols during my gallery walk, but ultimately couldn't protect me at every moment. One officer that day in that meeting asked me if I'd thought about how I dressed. And initially, I was so offended, thinking, are you blaming me for this? Then he pointed out I was wearing heels I couldn't run in, a long shawl of a jacket that I could use to be that could be used to choke me or tangle up against me as I was trying to run away, a necklace that could be used to pull me down and choke me, had my purse across my uh, chest the way a lot of us women do, and that could be used against you as well. It was terrifying to hear this, but I also really appreciated the honesty of this officer that day because it gave me clarity to the seriousness, but it also gave me one action I could do. Like in this, all of this chaos, when I have no control over anything, having control over something, just like being able to be safer of how I was dressed was such a huge thing for me. So I did learn to protect myself in other ways. I did one-on-one -on -one mixed martial arts training with a local expert. It was expensive at a time when my business was bleeding money, but it offered me an opportunity not only to learn what I needed to know if I was attacked, but also empowered me. The trainer came to my home and did a security check for me, helping identify where to um, hide the gun in my home, identifying weapons at hand, and practicing um, fleeing scenarios if, the, if I was ever to get broken into. This is something I still do when I'm choosing an apartment. I always choose an apartment with two exits. Um, I've learned things like carrying a knife is a better weapon for me than a gun, how to use the knife, things like that. And those things go everywhere with me. Um, even though the offender is in jail right now, I have my protection order, a knife, and various other things in my purse just because I need that to feel secure after all these years of trauma. I ended up each gallery walk having a friend with a concealed carry permit outside. I felt as though, and honestly still do, if something happens to me, that's one thing. But if something happened to a larger group, I couldn't live with that. So after going through that trauma with my business and having it just so greatly affect my business for the three or four years, I eventually lost my business. And when I lost it, I felt like I'd lost everything. I ended up uh, eventually getting back on my feet and moved into a sweet little apartment downtown. It had two exits, a carport behind it, so my car would be hidden. Feeling good about everything in life, like I was finally going to get it back on track, I broke my rule one night and walked down to meet some friends at a local pub just two blocks away. And of course, there he was outside the pub. And I went inside and up the stairs because what was I going to do, turn around and walk home and just let him follow me? I went inside and saw that, okay, I don't think he's followed me. So I sat outside on the balcony with my friends trying to shake it off. An hour or so later, I went inside to use the restroom and noticed that the offender had been sitting just inside, hidden behind a pillar, 
uh, the whole entire time. I had a complete panic attack and meltdown. The offender fled the scene, and I remember going home so terrified that night. I had a friend take me home, but even just trying to lock my door, like I got so terrified that I actually peed my pants. Um, after that day, I found out that while we thought my protection order was for three years, there had been a clerical error, and it was actually only for two years, so it had lapsed. So therefore, when I ran into the offender that evening, he was not breaking the law. I filed for a new one and had to appear in court with only my advocate in between myself and him as we stood in front of the judge. I remember being there just barely able to keep my legs underneath me. It was terrifying and completely uncalled for. But that day I was granted a lifetime protection order. This is incredibly rare, and even though it's just a piece of paper, like I said to you, it goes everywhere with me to this day. There were countless run-ins with the offender, some that were conscious, coincidence, some that were not. And I would find myself having to decide what to do. Sure, I had this uh, protection order. I had the support of law enforcement. And I was very fortunate. I am very fortunate because most people don't have these things. But ultimately, it's up to me to advocate and make decisions for myself. As a victim, sometimes you just want a break from the legal process. Plus, I continue to deal with somebody who believes that when I involve the legal process, it is a sign of my love for him. So this piece alone puts me in a very complex position as I make decisions for myself. After losing my business, I took a position as the marketing director for a large lumber company in town. Why a lumber company? It's all men that work there. I didn't tell anyone about my situation when I took the job. It's really hard to be in an interview and say, I'd love this position, but just so you know, there's a man who has erotomania who thinks we're married and also wants to murder me. And I do that regularly when I'm trying to get jobs. I can't sit, put that out there and eventually do have to tell employers if there's a threat made. It's a really unfortunate position. But back then, I finally did have to tell my boss. One day after seeing the offender's car at the end of the road, our business was located on. He was very kind and empathetic, but he did ask if I would send a picture to him as he wanted to email a picture of the offender to the staff. I agreed to let that happen as long as my name wasn't identified within it. And as you can imagine, I quietly sat there melting into the floor as everyone in the office gossiped and speculated. There were so many little moments like that where nobody knew and I didn't tell anybody what was going on. And my life just kept shrinking and shrinking. I would sit in my apartment perched above the ocean, my sweet, beloved little town. I felt like I was looking down on a movie set that I didn't get to be part of. My life just felt so separate and contained. My friends were there for me. My family was there for me. They all continue to be there for me. But this was getting old. There was no end in sight. Like I said, I didn't talk about it much because I felt like I was a broken record at this point. My friends are such empathetic and aware people, but we were going on four years at this point. So eventually, I decided to move in 2015. I gave myself six months to confirm, talked with my community and friends, my advocates. During that time, there were several run-ins with the offender that couldn't lead to arrest. My panic and anxiety was growing and growing. Then one day, I got a call from the state police. They had to serve me papers and they didn't want to do it at work, at my work, because they felt awful doing it in general. 
The offender was uh, serving me to appear in court to have the lifetime protection order removed. I went in with an army of people surrounded by law enforcement as the offender paced just a few feet away in the hallway. I threw open the bathroom as the door was guarded. I didn't even have to speak in court. The judge made it clear that in no way was she lifting this protection order, and if he ever did this again, she would arrest him on the spot for breaching the protection order. I stuck around a bit longer, but through a very long story, I moved here to the Mad River Valley of Vermont. With a job in the nonprofit world, wanting to eventually shift my career into communications and development for victim service agencies. It was painfully hard to leave my community and chosen family. It still is. But moving here, I got to go to the grocery store without fear, hike in the woods, go to the movies. So many things I hadn't done in years. In many ways, it still is me learning to walk again. In October 2016, I went back to Washington to visit friends. There was no social media posts, no announcements. I just quietly went back. And you may ask, why the heck would I have social media? Well, my job is in communications and marketing. It's what I do. It's what I'm good at. So professionally, I have to have some sort of an online presence. I keep my account private and no location known, but I still have to from a professional place. So while there in Washington, the offender must have seen me somewhere in town. And while sitting on a friend's bed, my phone started chirping with message after message after message. There must have been 15 and they were all from him. You can block somebody on Facebook, but they can always start another account. So as I sat at my friend's house, she had always been kind of with the camp of like, oh, this isn't that big of a deal. I handed her my phone and went through to the bath went and threw her my phone as I ran to the bathroom to throw up. When I came downstairs, she said, get in the car, we're going to the cops right now. These moments when a friend have reacted that way have snapped me into the reality and seriousness of this situation. So much of this has felt out of body over the years. Like, this is happening to somebody else, not to me. Eight years in, I still feel that way. And it's moments when a friend or a service provider say differently that are so confusing and gut-wrenchingly sad. My friend took me to the station, and Officer Corrigan, who's partially retired, happened to be on duty. I remember I walked into the station and just started sobbing. I tried to defend myself. I didn't let anybody know I was coming. I just wanted to come home, that type of thing. He hugged me and just let me cry and told me that none of this was my fault. We had what we needed to get an arrest. I extended my trip by a few days in case they needed me but I went and hid out at a friend's house a few hours away who was an elite military professional. Um, we have been dear friends for almost six years and he's been a great support to me and psychologically stealing myself for the years, educating me as to situational awareness within battle and how it applies to my life. A voice of reason and support when so many have not been able to know how to respond so often, especially with my male friends, they say things like, oh, just call me and I'll be there if he shows up. Having a friend like this who instead is just like, these are the things you need to know to protect yourself in the moment has been paramount. After hiding out there, the offender was very quickly arrested and we got to a point of pretrial really quickly. I was back here in Vermont and regularly on the phone with my officers and advocates who were still working with me and we've kept the entire case in Washington State. 
But sadly, the first case was misfiled as a misdemeanor instead of a felony, and the offender was released. So now I'm living alone in Vermont, waking up every morning or in the middle of the night to dozens of messages from the offender. The messages are getting more and more perverse in nature and more and more threatening. He talked about my sexual relationship that he and I had, described the sexual relationship I had with my recently dead dad. They went on and on. It was horrible. The cops were working to get the arrest right, but were having to do um, background internet searches to find out where the um, offender was actually located when he was sending these messages. And this went on and off for many months, um, and the offender was eventually arrested on a different charge not involving me. And eventually we found out that he had been in a different county when he was sending me these messages, so the case was moved um, to Clallam County where it is currently being prosecuted. During those times of him bouncing in and out of jail, he was arrested but able to make bail often, and the messages continued. And they came to a place one day where he wrote that he was going to come to Waitsfield, Vermont to be with me. As I said, while I have social media, I had never updated my location change from Washington State. So this was a new change and a great cause for alarm. Um, at this point, <clears throat> as I said, we were going on six or seven years. And so my law enforcement out in Washington wanted me to come meet with law enforcement here in Vermont just in case if something happens. So I went to the um, state police barracks in Middlesex to meet with law enforcement. The officer there dismissed me quickly, didn't even look at my files, saying there's nothing they could do. And I explained there was nothing they could do in the moment, but I just wanted them to be aware of my case. He gave me a little time, and I left feeling completely defeated. I'd moved thousands and thousands of miles, and I'm still not safe. And that moment of having that response is a response that many people get when going in to report a crime like this. They're dismissed because it is a psychological crime, and it's so hard to have the evidence there. So when I left and said, I just began doing what I did before, rerunning my safety drills, figuring out escape routes, driving strategies. All those places I had finally felt free to go suddenly became triggers again. The offender has a really specific look to him, so if I'd see a man like in the grocery store that looked like him, I'd have that adrenal system dump and have to leave. Spring of last year, the offender was moved from the facility he was in and back into jail. At this point, the detective in my case went to interview the offender to finalize if they could move forward with the felony char charges, and they determined they could. A few weeks later, I was, I was um, contacted by the detective, prosecuting attorney, and court advocate, and we set up a conference call. That afternoon, I was able to participate with them fully. We went over the Washington State definition of stalking. They discussed with me the complexities of this case and what we would have to do and how hard it was going to be to get prosecution. I had to do things like write a sworn statement, uh, provide names of people that could testify, we went over the Sentencing Reform Act, which is a extremely heady document um, to look at how long somebody can be sentenced for. What was really interesting is that my team, and I always call these people my team now, they educated me. They brought me to the table. They put me there as a team member and not just as the victim of crime. This is a very unique situation to have happen. But the way their legal team is working and including me as a partner is empowering. I get re-victimized 
all the time. But the impact is so different in this situation and the way they have proceeded with it. So a lot has happened with this case over the last um, year. And one piece that I can share with you is something quite remarkable that the former district court judge did. Shortly after charges were filed in my case, the prosecuting attorney discovered that my lifetime protection order was a lifetime protection order slash um, harassment. And in order to get the best prosecution, it would be beneficial to have it a lifetime protection order slash stalking. So he had me petition the old um, county court to see if they would do what is called a nunk pro tunk. This is essentially a legal term that means um, an order or a document is changed, but it remains with the original date that it had. So two days after I petitioned the court, the judge did in fact go ahead and do the nunk pro tunk. But she also did something different. She changed the distance that the offender had to be for me from that 500 feet that had been given out several years ago to 150 miles. Um, my prosecuting attorney and basically anybody I've talked to has said they've never seen a distance this big in all of their careers. So here we are today. The last eight years, I've lost a lot. I have PTSD and anxiety. As much as I try, it's still hard at times to go to the grocery store, take walks, or see men that resemble him. I sit with my back to the wall when I go out to eat. Um, being feared that he can potentially get my uh, P.O. box while he's in jail, it's triggering to even go to the post office. When I try to walk, I always walk with the sun behind me so I can see if there's any shadows coming my way. Um, Health-wise, health I have back issues from the stress and anxiety. I grind my teeth so much in my sleep that I recently cracked one. From a social impact, it's been difficult to make friends here. Dating, anything like that is really challenging um, because I've been so isolated. Um, I've learned, though, how to find confidence in my aloneness, but I'm not alone, and I've learned how to find that as well as I've started to speak up and use my voice. From an economic standpoint, I'm still paying off that failed business. And I'm gaining clients in the victim service field and just loving being able to go out and talk. But my main income had been bartending at a small inn here in Vermont until January of this year. And trust you me, being the last person to leave an establishment and get into my car at dark after shift isn't ideal. And there was many nights I found myself crying as I was scraping my car in the dark. And now that we are back in the case for the last year, I've certainly felt my anxiety growing as I try and navigate. It's isolating here in, New York, in Vermont. I live a quiet life, just me and my three-legged chihuahua in a studio apartment. And while yes, people know a bit more about my story, and after today a lot more, it can be very challenging. I got that email about the 150-mile protection order while I was bartending. Yeah, it's great news, it's awesome news but it's still really intense to take that in. The day felony charges were filed last year, I took the night off work and never left my bed. There's been days where I've had to sign paperwork at the state police barracks, such as statements or protection orders, drive back to town to find a public fax machine, which here in my community happens to be at the local bookstore. It's all jarring, it's triggering, it's strange. It's all these aspects of re-victimization and jobs that I have to do to continue this case moving forward. Even as I sit here sharing with you today, 
there is a hearing happening right now in Washington State regarding my case. And I have to work really hard to compartmentalize how I feel with what's happening out there, what's completely out of my control, and what I can do. And all I can do is try and distract myself some days, snuggle my dog, watch a show, and prepare for the report that will come in this evening. And I'm fortunate. I'm so fortunate that I can take the space to wait. And I'm so very lucky that I have a support system around me that I do in the form of advocates, victim service professionals here in Vermont and out in Washington that encourage me. I'm fortunate that I have a great therapist to be a sounding board and help me process through the anxiety. I'm incredibly lucky that my best friends and family who have walked through this hell with me for eight years are only a phone call away. And my new friends are just down the stairs of my apartment with a cup of coffee and a chat. But I'd like to close by sharing the good of it all with you and how I came to be sitting here today. Finally, I had to come to a place of acceptance. Over the years when there's been jail time or a move or whatever, I thought this is over. I thought we were done, I can move on. But I came to terms with the fact that this will never be over until sadly, probably one of us is dead. I know that sounds awful saying it, but that's the truth. And that was really the changing point for me. Because if this is part of my life, then what am I gonna do? I could change my name, I could live in the shadows, but I'm on a Nasset and no one can take that from me. And I allowed this offender to take that from me for far too long. So this really began to beg the question of what was I gonna do with my life if this was such a big part of it? Having long wanted to move my career into the victim service field, but not having the resources for education, I found out about the Vermont Victims Assistance Academy and started that in October 2017. After the first session, I met with the educational coordinator, Andrea, who worked for the Center for Crime Victim Services. <clears throat> and she took a look at my resume. She encouraged me to do work for victim service agencies exactly how I could, communications, marketing, and design. Thus, I started my own little business. Along with this, she also encouraged me to think about public speaking to victim service providers to educate them further as to the effects of stalking, to educate them on the tremendous services I have received, and to create awareness and a conversation and dialogue for victims of crime. This is something I never considered doing. But as you can tell, I took her advice, and I've been so fortunate this last year to travel all over the country, speaking at conferences, corporations, universities, military bases, and more. And it's a delight to be sitting here hosting this podcast with you. And that leads us to today. Me just sitting here in front of you, sharing with you my story, and my experiences, hoping that in some way it shifts your thinking about the crime of stalking and how lives are altered forever by this crime. Maybe it's not the right way for most, but it's the right way for me. I used to have a voice and I'm finding it again. It's different than before, but it's strong and getting stronger. I'm no longer living in the dark, and that's the best step I have taken in years. Yes, I'm strong and I've survived on my own, and I'm slowly learning how to stand taller, but it is because of my service providers, my friends, my family, people like you who are listening, that I stand here today. So thank you so much for listening to my story today and trusting me to be a voice of victims with this podcast. It is an honor. I hope that, um, this case informs you more about this crime 
and that you understand that like I'm just one face, but there are millions of people out there of every background, every gender, every race or, or social standing. Every victim deserves and needs to be heard, believed, and served. So thank you so much for listening today to The Mend. I look forward to sharing services, organizations, ideas, and more with you as we look into the experience of victims of crime here. If you have any questions, I'd love to hear from you. And also, if you'd like to hear the full version of my story and case study, you can simply email me at Anna at StandUpResources.com. Thank you to the Center for Crime Victim Services. I'm Anna Nassett, and I look forward to sharing more with you every week on The Mend. Be well, be strong, goodbye.